When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning grateful for, for this church and this time, and especially grateful for your word, and we pray that you would bless us and walk beside us as we open it and as we dig to discover what it holds for us. Father, we're grateful for all of the gospels, for the gospel of John, for the words of Jesus, and I pray that we would take them to heart. Father, we love you and we're grateful for Jesus and all he means to us, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. My name is Blake Dozier, and I am the youth minister here at Oldham Lane. So as always, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you all this morning, and also grateful that Chris will be back next week. Um, If you have your Bibles or your devices, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 6. I opened with a reading from our key scripture today, and we're going to spend some time unwrapping that verse and the context around it. John chapter 6. You know, we've all experienced disappointment at some time in our life, Um, but I've learned that as a parent, maybe you experience it more frequently, like when your kid comes running into the room calling your name, eyes beaming, smile across their face, and you're anticipating the joyful, loving hug that you're about to receive, and instead they run past you to the other parent. Or worse, they were sent by the other parent to have their diaper changed. Even more disappointing. Um, Or maybe as a teenager, they come to you ready to break the silence and open up and have a real heart-to-heart talk with you to get some wise parenting advice, and then they ask for money. We all know the feeling of disappointment when our expectations don't match reality. And in today's text, a group of people show up to Jesus seeking something that turns out to be a disappointment. And so as we look at this interaction today, we're going to work through three big questions. You'll see them in the bulletin, um, and you'll see them posted across the screen as we go through them. We're going to look at the text, and in the first verse, in verse 26, we're going to ask, what was the problem with the crowds seeking. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then we're going to move into verse 27. We're going to ask ourselves what Jesus meant when he said, do not work for the food that perishes. And then finally, we're going to ask what did Jesus mean when he said or implied that we should work for food that endures to eternal life. And then as we wrap up the sermon, My prayer is that this will be more than an intellectual exercise, but that the words of Jesus will cause you to examine what you're seeking and why you're seeking it and what the work of your life reflects. So we'll begin with our first question. What was the problem with the crowds seeking? In the context of John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus had just miraculously fed 5,000 people the day before using only five loaves and two fish. And after doing this, he withdrew from the crowds and unbeknownst to them during the night, he walked across the Sea of Galilee, joined up with his disciples in a boat, 
and they found themselves in Capernaum. So you can imagine the crowd's surprise when they woke up the next morning and found that Jesus was nowhere to be found. And as they went searching for him and, and came to Capernaum, they're surprised at finding him there. So their question makes sense. Rabbi, when did you come here? And instead of responding to their question, Jesus peers past it, and he responds to their motives. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So it would appear at first reading that Jesus is chastising this crowd that is seeking him for falling into a what's-in-it-for-me trap. And in a sense, I think we could say that they have. We're all familiar with this mentality. It drives everything that we consume. It's the primary drive of every marketing campaign to sell you everything that you have ever bought. We're always tuned in to the benefits of, that something might bring to us. What's going to make us look the coolest or feel the best or give us the most opportunity or leave us with the most money in our pockets at the end of the day? Or in the case of the crowd in the Gospel of John, what's going to keep our bellies full? But before we check this question off as answered, I think that we need to dig a little bit more because I'm not sure that the self-benefiting desire for a full belly was their only error. I think the, believe the problem was much deeper than this. I don't think it was a desire for more signs or even a desire for good things from God that caused Jesus to chastise them. And I think this for two reasons. First of all, we have other examples of people seeking after Jesus in order to receive personal benefit. And in those other instances, he gives it without condemnation and sends them along their way. Um, you could find an example of this in John chapter 4, um, just a few chapters before, when an official comes and he seeks out Jesus for the purpose of healing his son who is sick. He believes that Jesus has the power to do it. Jesus heals his son, sends him on his way, and all is well. Um, in Luke chapter 6, actually throughout all of the Gospels, but in Luke chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, we see a specific instance where the people are seeking Jesus for healing. Luke 6, 17 and 19 reads, And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. They were pursuing Jesus because they desired to be miraculously healed. So it doesn't appear that um, receiving a benefit was good enough for Jesus to condemn them for the things that they were seeking. In fact, my second point is that Jesus' response implies that their reasons for pursuing him prior to this miracle were acceptable. In John 6, 26, he says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. If we backed up in chapter 6, all the way to verse 2, before he fed the 5,000, we read this. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Okay. This language mirrors what we see later on, and we know from the Matthew and Luke account 
that on this day, before Jesus, healed fi- or before Jesus fed the 5,000 people, he healed a significant number of them. There were people amongst them that were sick, and I think it's reasonable to believe that one of the things that would have pushed them to pursue Jesus would have been the benefit of healing. So what changed? Why was it okay to seek out healing, but not okay to seek food? Let me begin to answer this by making a statement. Good things came about for this crowd because they were seeking Christ. He did not condemn them for desiring good things, and good things come to you from following Christ. And this text is not meant to condemn you for desiring those good things. One of those things that I would list is hope, or I might say joy in a broken world. I believe there is great tangible benefit from a life lived seeking Jesus. And this text is not meant to make us turn away from those things. So as we work to discern exactly what this text is speaking to, I think we need to look at a particular word. We need to look at the word signs. I love that John uses the phrase signs instead of miracles all throughout his gospel. Because while the difference is subtle, it's a powerful difference. When you're driving and you see a flashing light that says, school zone ahead, you know that you need to slow down and hang up your cell phone and keep an eye out for children and school buses. And you know that if you get caught doing any of those things, it's going to cost you twice as much as it does anywhere else. That sign communicates something to you. It communicates a message. A miracle is a supernatural event. A sign is a miracle with a purpose. They were meant to point you towards something, to communicate something with you. And John himself tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that the purpose of the signs that he shared was that the readers would believe, and through belief they would find eternal life. When John tells us the crowds were following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, he is describing to us a people who had recognized the supernatural work of God through Jesus. At the very least, they would have believed Jesus to be a prophet. It had been 400 years, 400 years since God had spoken to his people through a prophet. And there was an air of anticipation. They were excited, and these signs showed them and pointed them to the fact that God was moving again. That was a good thing, and that was an exciting thing. And I think we can have some confidence that they hoped he would perform another one of these signs as they followed him into the wilderness. I don't know why God would have had a problem with that, since the whole purpose and design of these signs was to point to his glory and his purpose. So what changed? What changed with this particular sign? The incorrect preconceived notions that the people had about the restored kingdom of God caused them to miss where the sign was pointing them. Let me say that differently. The nature of this miracle caused them to take their eyes off of supernatural things and focus on earthly things. Namely, their history, their heritage as the nation of Israel. They failed to see where the signs were pointing them. 
Remember that verse 26 came the day after the miracle. Look at how the people responded the day of the miracle. In verse 14, chapter 6. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Take him by force and make him king. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses had given a promise to the nation of Israel. He said the time would come when God would raise up another prophet like me. And in Deuteronomy chapter 34, we read some of the key characteristics of this prophet. The Lord would know him face to face. He would do signs and wonders before foreign rulers. He demonstrated his mighty power before all Israel. Can y'all hear me still? I can talk. Okay, I think I'm back. <clears throat> he demonstrated his mighty power before all of Israel. One particular meaning, meaningful and powerful way that Moses demonstrated power before Israel was in the form of manna, of bread that came down from heaven while they wandered in the wilderness. And when the people proclaimed, this is indeed not a prophet, but the prophet, they meant the prophet Moses told them about that had never showed up. The sign of bread in the wilderness is what made them connect these dots. And it wasn't an unreasonable dot to connect. In fact, later on in the sixth chapter, Jesus makes reference to this historical fact as he tries to help them understand that he represents the eternal counterpart to this perishable event from history. But they didn't make it that far. They weren't able to see that there was something bigger happening. They were geared up to settle in for something far less than God had planned. He was working on an eternal kingdom, and they wanted a physical one. They wanted another perishable kingdom like the one that they had read about in the Old Testament. They wanted a restored earthly kingdom. In one sense, you could say they had spiritual things on their mind. And their response was indeed rooted in the Word of God, in their anticipation of spiritual things to come. But what they sought was too small, it relied on human effort, and it fell short of God's plans for his new kingdom. I'm going to steal a quote from John Piper, whose theology I do not agree with, but he used a beautiful analogy to describe what we see happening here. He said, When Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and a few fish, it was a sign. That is, it was like a beam of glory streaming out from the person of Jesus Christ. It was like a ray of light coming out from Jesus. But what they didn't do when they looked at the sign was to let their eyes run up the beam of glory from the pleasure in their belly to the treasure of Christ. They didn't follow the ray of light back up to the beauty of the sun. They were seeking him not because of who he was and what he was doing, but because of what it meant for them. This was more than just full bellies. This was a restoration and establishment of God's kingdom as a political power. And so I ask you, why do you seek him? We very much associate seeking him with church attendance, and that's a lesson for another day. But I'll ask it like this. Why are you here? There's great benefit in seeking Christ. 
namely hope and joy in a fallen and broken world, and desiring that benefit is okay. But if you're expecting him to fix the broken world around you, then you're missing the point. Jesus showed up to guide us into a new and a better and a lasting one. Are you desiring for him to provide perishable things or enduring things? To really know, we have to spend some time in the next two questions. What does Jesus mean by do not work for the food that perishes? We'll look at the idea of work as we address the third question. Right now, we're going to focus in on the food that perishes. I believe we instinctively know that these words are metaphorical and not literal. The biblical text proves this true. We could turn to Ephesians 4.28, and he says, Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. Or 2 Thessalonians 3.10-12, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We have to view this lens with, through the metaphor that it was, and that is don't strive for things that are temporary. It would be accurate for me to observe the following things are temporary. This list could go on and on, and you could add your own to it. Your fancy pickup truck, your dream home, your dream job, financial security, awesome vacations, nice clothing, extra blue shirts, great furniture, a new gun, a new phone, a new boat, a vacation home. These are temporary in nature, and we struggle with our pursuit of them. In fact, materialism is pointed out numerous times in Scripture as a nasty trap that pulls people away from salvation all of the time. Jesus says it's difficult, though not impossible through God, for a rich man to enter heaven. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to live our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. Those who had followed Jesus into the wilderness area, however, some of them were sick. They were willing to miss a meal to hear what Jesus was saying. I don't think they were pursuing materialism. The health and wealth gospel is an unbiblical nightmare. But it's not what Jesus was dispelling here. It doesn't appear to be what the people were wrestling with. Materialism fits the bill, but it wasn't his focus. Let me state plainly what I believe was. I believe at a root level, these people were wrestling with their identity. When Jesus tells them not to work for a food that perishes, he was saying, do not do not get your sustenance and your identity and your sense of meaning and your sense of purpose and your sense of belonging from a place that's just going to fail you. From something that's not lasting. For them, this was the law of Moses. And this anticipation that they had of what it was going to look like. One chapter earlier, Jesus had said, in John 5, 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So you see this pattern emerging. They're so focused on the message. 
that they miss the glory of the messenger. They're so focused on the nuts and bolts that they miss the purpose. They're so focused on the results of the sign that they miss where the sign was pointing them towards. And that was a big, big miss. So as we set aside the temptation to make this passage about materialism, we have to ask ourselves questions that point us towards something deeper. Where do you get your identity from? How do you find peace to sleep at night? What satisfies you? What appeases your conscience and makes you feel like you matter? Jesus chose the metaphor food wisely. Not only did it have historical value in rooting this miracle in the context of God providing to Israel, it had a common sense application. The saying goes, you are what you eat. So preaching to you this morning is 50% stripes corn dogs and 50% coffee. <laughs> we laugh, but there's an increasing awareness in our culture that the foods that we eat have an impact on us. And while we struggle to get consistent information about what is healthy and what is not, one thing we know for sure, what we eat affects us, and it has a significant impact on life expectancy and quality of life. Yet when we step into the spiritual realm, when we start talking about what we ingest spiritually, we're pretty lax. We're pretty willy-nilly. Jesus says, stop. Stop that. Stop placing your identity in things of the world, no matter how noble they seem to you. You can't fill your spiritual tank with perishable nonsense and expect to live eternally. Whether this nonsense is the blatant lie of materialism, and you think your value comes from the things you have, or the subtle lie of moralism, and your value comes from how good you are most of the time, or the more subtle lie of legalism, your value comes from the rules that you follow. You need to know that those do not, cannot, and will not endure. They're perishable. If your identity, your peace, your hope, and your satisfaction comes from anything other than Jesus Christ, you're working for food that perishes. So that brings us to our third question. What does Jesus mean when he says that we should work for food that endures to eternal life? In a sense, my answer to this has already been implied, but let's finish the thought by simply reading the words of Jesus that immediately follow our text. In verse 28, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. He goes on six verses later to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then 13 verses after that, in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Your work. Your work is to believe in me. I am the enduring food that gives eternal life. Don't forget the history books. The things that you are desiring have always been and will always be perishable, and the only thing that's not is me. If your sense of identity, belonging, or purpose is wrapped up in anything other than Jesus Christ, then you have wedded your soul to something perishable. 
Showing up to church doesn't mean you're pursuing things that endure. Showing up to the right church doesn't mean you're pursuing things that endure. Avoiding materialism doesn't mean you're pursuing things that endure. Working to fix our culture, our political system, doesn't mean you're pursuing things that endure. While these things may be no noble, and they may be motivated by good ideas and intentions, perhaps in a sense those things even honor God, help us grow, provide opportunities for others to see, that's not the work we do. Jesus says, the work you do is to believe. It's plain, it's simple, and at some level I find it unsatisfying because Satan has given me, and I would thank many of you, a strong urge that we view as noble to earn things for ourselves. We very much want our work to be something tangible. And Jesus says, belief. And as he builds his metaphor, he describes the work of believing as eating the right food. We feed ourselves with him and him only. We nourish ourselves with him and him only. We take satisfaction in him and him only because nothing else endures and nothing else will build in you a soul that endures. Garbage in, garbage out. Perishable in, perishable out. Life in, life out. Jesus wants our belief in him to be our sole source of meaning, purpose, and belonging. He is our sustenance and our identity. I told you at the beginning we're going to answer three questions, and we have done this. The crowd was seeking an earthly kingdom like they remembered in the Old Testament. Jesus pushed them to move past perishable things such as that, place their belief in him, and allow him to become their new and lasting source of identity, their life. And so that brings us to our final question. What is your life's work and what does it reflect? If you examined closely what you are living for, what would you find? Does your hope come from material things? Or what about from following the rules? Or what about from being good? Maybe from a job or membership and belonging to a certain group of people, perhaps even from your doctrinal beliefs? If so, Christ says to you, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. You need something tangible to take with you. 30 minutes of talking, and I probably could have just said this. If you want to pursue and understand things that endure to eternal life, go home and read your Bible. Not, not like go home and read your Bible like these Jews did that missed the point. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. Go home and read your Bible and make it your life's work to understand and uncover the glory of God in Scripture. And as you do, you will find the living and enduring Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the Son of God, the Savior, take center stage 
and the perishable things of this world, even yourself, disappears into the background. As a community of people seeking Christ through his word, we understand the power of Christian community and the power of prayer. If you have needs today, we stand ready to support you, to pray for you, and to love on you. If you believe the message of the Bible shared today, Jesus as the Son of God and the key to eternal life, but you haven't joined your life to his through the miracle of water baptism, we invite you to do so today. If you've been striving for food that perishes and want to publicly repent and redirect, we will pray for you. We will support you in that decision. We ask that you come forward as we stand and as we sing.